We are going through the book of Matthew. Today is Palm Sunday. What a glorious day it is, right? We are almost to Easter, and it is something to be celebrated. I mean, Palm, Palm Sunday, is a, it's kind of an unusual thing. It's, it's when Israel hails this one coming in triumphantly into the city, into his city, yet it would end differently than everyone expected, right? So we look to Easter today. Okay, well... We've been going through Matthew for about six months now. We've got another year and a half to go or so, so I hope you have your seatbelts on. Um, we start kind of a new section today. Um, I'm going to throw this up here, and you can see. I'm going to go ahead and read this first part, and I'll show you why this is kind of a new section. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This first verse here, I don't know if if many of you have been following us along the way, this first verse is almost identical to a verse earlier in the book. And it's the verse that comes right before the Sermon on the Mount. So you can see these, there's, Matthew is purposely, so he set these bookends, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, so why? Why did he set these bookends? The interesting thing is between these, these two verses that are the same, you see Jesus teaching what the kingdom is like. He, he delivers probably the greatest sermon ever, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and he explains When you want to be like kingdom people, this is what you do. This is the way you think. This is the way you operate. And then the second half of that is seeing Jesus show these little glimmers, these little glimpses of what kingdom looks like. They're like these little pre-indications of something wonderful, something marvelous in his healing, right? Casting out demons and so forth. So we have seen both Jesus' word and his deed, and they are encapsulated by this, this little verse here that kind of just summarizes the whole thing. So you see here, he went through all the cities and villages. Cities is kind of the big ones, and the villages are the kind of the small ones. Jesus didn't leave any in between. He's like, no, we're going to go to all of them. They're all important. He teaches in their synagogues. It's the most likely place to go where where a a rabbi would go to teach uh, these type of things. But the key here, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is what Jesus does. Okay, But we switch gears now. There's this expectation. Okay, so we now have closed the book on something, but what is coming? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. I want you to know that the word behind compassion here is literally, the the, the root word kind of translates uh, like guts. You know when you say like, I experienced this thing and it was visceral? The whole idea of visceral comes from the word viscera, which is literally, it's like your entrails. So it's, it's super powerful because what it's saying is that At the core, at the center of Jesus, in his guts, he had compassion. And I want to do a simple differentiation that I believe is true. You guys can argue with me or not. This doesn't have to do with Greek or the Bible necessarily. But when you see compassion, oftentimes we say, we think pity. And I want to argue those are two different things. In our our language, oftentimes pity is something you do to someone over there. Something about their life is pitiful. It is like, oh, I'm so sad for you. Right? And sometimes it's even treated as, as a negative, like that, that's pitiful, meaning like I'm above you somehow. You're so pitiful. Compassion contains more than that. It contains something that is driving to action. 
When you have compassion on someone, it's hard to say, oh, I have compassion for you, and do nothing. Right? When you say, I, I pity you, it's a little bit different. So I just want to make sure you understand that underneath this, I think it truly is, there is an action that is developed into this word. It's like I am so, I'm feeling the pain roiling within the center of my being, and I must do something. Okay, so that makes sense? So think about these crowds. Jesus has just completed doing 10 known miracles, right? There are these ones that we see happening. Now, there are other statements where it says he, he went out and he did these miracles, right? So there might be more, but the 10 we know of, every time he does one of these things, just about every time, what happens? More crowds come. Crowds marvel. Crowds are amazed. So it leaves Jesus in this point of like, there is this collecting mass of people, and they all need help. In fact, they are harassed and helpless. And if you look at the words underneath this, harassed and helpless is like, think about, harassed actually has the idea of skin or flaying skin off. It is, you are torn up. It's like you've been through the ringer. And helpless is, um, think of it as thrown down. Like you're laying down because you were thrown down. All the things that have happened to you that have accumulated in all of this this uh, harassedness, you're afflicted and so forth, has got you laying on the ground, torn up, listless, almost dead, not doing anything, not knowing what to do next. So you can kind of get an explanation of why it is that Jesus has this, his guts are turning because of this. But if it needed to be clearer, he pulls out this metaphor. And for those of you that read your Bible a lot, you might recognize this metaphor Sheep and a shepherd. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And this is something that goes through a lot of the Old Testament. In fact, the, the Old Testament prophets talk about this idea of sheep and shepherd quite a bit. And I wanted to use one simple example. There's in the book of Ezekiel, which is one of the major prophets. And when you're talking about prophets, the prophets really were a class of people called by God to call out the nation of Israel. They were the covenant watchdogs. They were there to say, Israel, the people, the, all of them, you're going the wrong way. You're doing the wrong thing. You need to change direction. If you don't, know that judgment is coming. This is what the prophet's role was, and it was not a liked role, right? You don't, you don't go into someone's house and say, look, the food you're making is horrible. You don't clean this place. Judgment, right? This is, imagine that on a great scale, like walking into a house of your people and telling them you are messing up big time. So toward the end of the book of Ezekiel, we're almost getting to, to the end of it. There's this kind of one of these final statements where Yahweh gets under Ezekiel's skin and he tells him to say this. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding them yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek them. Do you see the problem? 
This is, a, this is so much earlier than the text we're reading today. But this is the prophetic voice saying, Israel, your leadership, likely the, those in the priestly class, the higher-ups, the muckety-mucks, do you know what you're doing? Because right now, it looks like you are causing devastation. You are eating your own young. You are destroying your own people. And Jesus takes up this metaphor. But in a different way, he says, I can't handle what's going on here. I can't handle, but the, the issue is, is that the problem is bigger than just those sheep and the condition of them. He changes now, and he mixes this second metaphor, and he says this. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, Jesus has done the math. All the crowds that have come to him, he's done all these miracles, he's seen the crowds, he's been all over this general area of Galilee. It says that his fame has spread to the north, to Syria, to the south, to Jerusalem. It has spread through Galilee to the, to the west, and it has spread over to Decapolis, which is in the east. It is spread all over, and what's happening? Everyone's coming. Those listless sheep that don't have a shepherd, they are looking for one. They're lost. Jesus says, basically, this is mathematically improbable at least, if not impossible. But now I know you say, but he's Jesus. He's Jesus. We have this thing where we think about power where like, could Jesus resolve this problem? Could the God of the universe resolve this problem? Yes. Yes. But we have to look to you. So what is it that Jesus does when he feels his guts exploding for the people and the problems that are all around him, the crowds he wants to bring back to himself? What does he do? He uses an ancient technique. You'd find that technique in the first two pages of your Bible. He basically says, hey, the first two pages, you remember that uh, God created image bearers. He created it. It was all good. And he, he takes his image bearers and, and putting his image on them is like, you are my royal viceroys. You are to take my will and my way into creation. But let's, let's compare that. Let's think about the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus has dealt with to date, they're looking at the sheep and, and the harvest in a different way. They're looking out on the fields and they're saying, why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Why is it you don't fast the way we do? You see, their system was looking at the harvest field as if it wasn't, ah, maybe this is a rotten harvest. Think of all the things that can happen to a harvest, right? Harvest can not get enough water, can not get enough fertilizer, it can get blight or disease, it can actually be attacked by locusts or grasshoppers that would destroy it. But there's nothing in that previous idea that would say that. Jesus is simply saying, this is a plentiful field and it is valuable and it has an urgent need. So he says, we must do something and how he does it is simple. And he called 12 disciples and gave them authority over clean, uh, unclean spirits and cast them out and to heal, to heal every disease and every affliction. Everything you have seen in the last section of, the, of Matthew has said, 
Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. He has authority to give the word. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowd marveled at the authority he had. And then he goes out and he heals. He casts out demons. He heals from afar. He heals close up. His authority is all-encompassing. And what does he do? He takes that authority and says, go do like I do. You see, first few pages of the Bible, you might hear the echo of these are image bearers. They are to take Jesus. They, are, they have Messiah with them, so they take his ways with them. They take his authority, and they continue to do the things that he does. So we get specific, and it looks kind of boring, doesn't it? It's a list. The names of the 12 that he sends out, that he is given authority to, 12 apostles, first Simon, who's called Peter, and then Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot. Some of these guys you know, right? Peter, he's pretty popular. He's the one who makes decisions in kind of a rash way, kind of jumps in wholehearted, sometimes a little too quick, kind of like you and me. You might know James and John. Hey, they're part of the inside crew. They were with him a few times. I've seen him there. Bartholomew? Well, I don't know. Thaddeus? I had a buddy named Thaddeus. I don't know what his namesake was. I don't know what he did. James, the son of Alphaeus. You see, mixed in this list is this amazing idea. It's that there are some that you know, but there are some that for some reason, as God inspired the Bible, we don't know anything about them. There are extra-biblical texts that tell us some, some ideas of what they may have done. For example, Thomas may have gone, I mean, he's the doubter, you know that, right? Doubting Thomas, we know that one. But he likely went to India, or he spread into some other uh, faraway lands, right? But again, the Bible chose not to tell us. There's a level of anonymity that it's totally comfortable with. And then others we know. We know some of their story. We know where they came from. But I want to point out a couple in particular. There are three that get these other identifiers. So some of them are like brothers or, you know, they're part of this family, part of that family. But there are three that have other indicators. One is Matthew himself gets called the tax collector. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew the tax collector, how tax collectors within Israel, they are uh, kind of a traitor. They're the, kind of the worst of the worst. A tax collector is an Israelite who has aligned themselves with Rome to take their money and maybe a little bit off the top for themselves. So they're wealthy on the backs of all the other Israelites. They have aligned with the enemy. So Matthew is in this list, clearly. But then there's this other guy, Simon the Zealot. You guys know Judas Iscariot. That is the third one, but you kind of know his story. But Simon the Zealot, you may not know much about. But the, the reality is when it says the zealot, um, zeal is not a word. Do you guys use that much? Boy, my child, boy, they're really zealous. I have zeal for my job. You don't do that a whole lot. But this particular moniker was important for this time. It was one of the sects within Jerusalem, within Judaism, that actually had a particular outlook on things. And actually, this outlook comes from the Old Testament. Well, part of it goes back to the Old Testament. You can go far, as far back as Phineas in Numbers 25, who was so angry at his people who hadn't even made it into the promised land yet, and they're already they're marrying foreign wives, and they're worshiping those foreign wives' God. Phineas is upset, and he does business. And God says, he has the jealousy. He has my jealousy. 
He understands. He has zeal for me. And if any of you have read the Maccabees, they are not in your Bible, but they're something that's helpful sometimes. It tells you a little bit of the history. It's where you get the idea of Hanukkah from. That happened in the Maccabees. And there was a guy named Mattathias. And Mattathias, the the thing was is that uh, there's a gentleman named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he was a bad dude. And he took over Israel. And he was having Israel worship foreign gods. He was having them. He actually would go in the temple and have people basically sacrifice pigs in the temple of the Lord. That is an unclean thing that you do not do that. And he would send people out to the outer regions and other cities and get people to, to basically sacrifice to the gods. He gets to Mattathias' town and he gets a line of people that are ready to sacrifice and a guy starts moving forward to sacrifice. Mattathias is so disgusted that he kills his his fellow Israelite because he's about to sacrifice to the other gods. So you see this idea of zeal comes from somewhere. But the thing that was taken farther is that Rome, at the time of Jesus and Simon, Rome has got to go. So a zealot is going to kill, he'll do insurrection, he will murder, he will assassinate, he will destroy anything he can to get the Romans out. That is a zealot. Now imagine for a second Jesus has that barbecue. He says, okay, Matthew, Simon, enjoy the chicken. Do you see what's happening in this very list that Matthew doesn't even really say a whole lot about? But the next, I guarantee you, when you turn the page, it doesn't say, and Simon murdered Matthew. It doesn't say that. And that's what has to make us think about what is is being said in the middle of this this story here that seems kind of boring from the outside, just a list of 12 dudes. Why is, this, why is this so important to us? The same thing pans out in other places in the Bible. If any of you remember the book of Acts, there's a time when Paul and Silas end up getting to this Greek city called Philippi. And when they arrive there, they go down to the riverside because that's where worship often would happen if you didn't have a synagogue in a city. This is a Roman colony, so it's foreign land. And he finds this woman named Lydia. And Lydia sold purple stuff. Do you know who buys purple stuff? The richest of the rich. So Lydia was a businesswoman, and she was probably quite wealthy. And what does she do? She hears Paul tell of this Jesus. She hears him proclaiming this kingdom And she says, I'm in. And she and her whole household are baptized. And it says that there are other women down at the riverside as well. We don't hear anything about, again, there's anonymity there. We don't know. Then fast forward to the next scene. Silas and Paul walking through town. And they have this young slave girl who's following them saying, look, these are of the most high God. These are the guys, you know. And and she's a divinator. She, She basically does magic. She is hired out as a slave girl to do magic for people, to tell fortunes and so forth. And she recognizes Paul and Silas for who they truly are. They're representatives of the king. Paul got so vexed that he just casts out the demon from the young slave girl, which is super good from our perspective. But what do you think the people that hired her out felt? They just lost their entire livelihood. So they send Paul and Silas to the magistrates. They get beaten. They get thrown in jail. And the next scene you have is Paul and Silas, and it's midnight. And they're in stocks, not a good thing, in the inside of the jail, and they're singing hymns. Hymns to Jesus. And then an earthquake happens. And 
the jail is opened up. And if that happens, whoever is responsible for the prisoners, if they let prisoners go and they shouldn't have, they, will, they can be killed. So the jailer is about to kill himself. Paul says, wait, we haven't gone anywhere. You're good. And the jailer and the whole family meet Jesus and their household is baptized. And you have another family who's come in. This all happens in Philippi. And the thing is, it's in the story in your Bible. You can read, there's a whole book to the church at Philippi. Paul writes a book to them, and he says stuff like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Right after this, what does he use as example? Have this mind among you, Jesus, Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the one who came down. He enfleshed for you and for me and died a wicked death for you and for me. This is why we operate this way. That's what Paul is saying. And who was probably listening? Maybe a jailer in his family, maybe a wealthy businesswoman, maybe a slave girl, three people that would normally never cross paths, at least not in a good way. So you see in the middle of this story about these apostles, you see this diversity. You see a level of anonymity even. You see in the story of, of the church at Philippi, you have this diversity, people who are together who maybe would never normally be so. But there's a reason. Last week, Jesus, uh, Isaac dealt with an existential question, and, and it really impacted me because he said things like, some of you may feel like, I'm not even sure that my spouse cares that I'm around. I don't even, I'm not even sure that my kids love me. There's this deep question that we all deal with, which is, do I belong? Where do I belong? And the answer he used was basically from the story of, of the bleeding woman who Jesus would call daughter. He would heal her and call her daughter. He's saying, you are welcome to end. You are part of the family. You belong for no other reason than I am one who would make you belong. You are welcome in because you had faith in what I would do. But see, this, this gets to the second existential question, which can only be answered by an illustration from my own life and hopefully yours too. When I was a kid in grammar school, I loved recess. I loved recess. But the thing I loved most was kickball. Anyone like kickball? Do you, does anyone know kickball? Okay, so it's a team sport. You know, it's like baseball, but you're using your feet. That's it. It's a simple, simple thing. <laughs> but it also used the cool ball. It was like, doing, doing, you know, that red four square ball. Loved those balls because you didn't even have to kick it far. All you wanted was that good sound. It was like, boing, and you're like, oh, I got all of that one, you know? But here's the deal. When you started any team sport, whatever it was, whatever you enjoyed doing in recess, if it was a team sport, there was one thing that started everything. Do you remember? Picking teams. And some of you in the room, you were the one who picked the teams. But the majority of us in the room were the ones who were picked. And some of us were picked last. Some of us may have been skipped. Some of us may have been ignored. Do you see? This is what we dealt with last week. It's, it's the idea of belonging. It's the idea of, no, Jesus, he picks, he wants you. You are his sheep. You are his creation. He loves you. He has, uh, well, I won't get too quickly, but there's a second question that comes from this. Now, 
You're on the kickball field. Some of you are like, I don't know how to catch a ball. I got picked for this team, but I'm no good at it. So now you're worried about performance. You're worried, am I in the right place? Am I supposed to be doing this? Because you see the people whispering on the other team, hey, kick it out to left field to Eddie. He can't catch. It's, it's true, isn't it? It's true. So deep within all of us is the second question, which is, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? And this, brothers and sisters, is what I want to tell you. That's what this scripture today is dealing with in a great and majestic way. There's a diversity that you see within even the initial group that Jesus grabs a hold of. There are people in this group that you're like, they don't belong together. I bet you if you ever really considered it, you could sit out in the lobby and watch everyone walk into this building and you'd think about your own life, your own past, and you'd be like, I don't think I belong with some of these people. You ever thought about that? And yet, we all embody ourselves on this day week at least for one purpose. And that's for the worship of our king. That is for the, it's what Jesus would say. He, right after the text we've gone through today, what does he do? He says, go out. Proclaim the kingdom has drawn near. Heal the sick. Cleanse the leper. He says, uh, cast out demons. He even says, raise the dead. He tells that to his disciples to do those things. But the very first thing, the overriding thing, proclaim this kingdom has come near. So why is it that a bunch of us monkeys in here, we look different, we come from different backgrounds, we have different experiences, but somehow we all come together to worship this king, and that is what we celebrate. A community, our community, this community is all about the Lord's business. But here's the thing, the culture wants to lie to you. And I'm going to tell you, I fall for this sometimes too. They tell us, make something of yourself, you can do it. Make a name. Go be the person you want to be. How does that work? Let me just ask the married people in the room, how does that work when you're supposed to be a one flesh union and you're both trying to make you be the person you're supposed to be? Doesn't always work. So there's a necessity, I think, for us to grab a hold of that compassion, that roiling in the guts that Jesus shows and start to see, like, no, no. Have you, ever, have you ever been in church and seen someone come through the doors and they're crying? Do you see? Your guts are like, I don't know that person, but I want to be a part of the action that solves the problem. You see, we have a, to de- together in community, we have power. See, a lot of times I think we just think, like, we're part of a community, we're part of Jesus' team, so we have power. Like, we're, we're, like, individually powerful. And while that could be true in a way, your, your gifts matter. You have a unique uh, experiences and gifts and so forth. We are so much more powerful together for several reasons. Well, some for inside and some for outside. Let me give you an example. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team back up. We're going to kind of close up with communion in a second here. But I want you to just think about this. Some of you in the room have stru- are, are in the middle. You are in the deepest, darkest part of addiction. You're addicted. 
Glad you're here. Some of you in this room are on the other side of that deep addiction. You're still struggling, you're still working on it, but you have somehow made your way past to the hard times, and you now have vital counsel that you can provide to maybe that other person who's here. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Doesn't matter. That shared experience is the thing that maybe the reason why God has put you in the same family here in this building is so that you could be part of, of that restoration, that part of that sheep becoming truly shepherded. Because someone would reach out and say, I have compassion for you because I know what it feels like. How about some of you? Some of you are married and you don't know yet how to do marriage. <laughs> it's not easy. Glad you're here. But there are some of you who have been married for decades, and you have been through the roller coaster, the ups and downs. You've known how to survive. You've known what it feels like when it seems like your spouse does not love you, and you don't love your spouse, and you've had to come back together and figure it out. You maybe could help that other couple. Or how about this? Maybe some of you in the room don't know Jesus yet. You don't know the gospel. You're like, I don't get this. Some of you, maybe a month ago or maybe a lifetime ago, you came to Jesus and you know what it looks like to stand with the king, and you can share that. But here's one of the biggest ones. That's all inside these walls. Do you know that the fields outside of this building are ripe? They're ready for harvest. There are so many people that are struggling, and they don't have any place that they belong. They don't know what their purpose is. They've lost purpose. And you can remind them, no, no, come, come to my community where we surround ourselves. We are surrounding the king of the universe who loves us and calls us in and gives us purpose and reminds us it doesn't matter the things you've experienced or the things we will experience or the things you've done wrong or the things we'll do right. He has called us in in order to continue to give glory to him and his father, right? So we're going to take communion. When you get a chance, go ahead and stand up. We're going to take communion together. And I just want to remind you that the very one who calls, the very one who set apart those disciples, sets us apart in some way, shape, or form, and that we have value and purpose in this place and out of this place. Sometimes it's hard to figure out, but that's why we're here, right? You don't always know exactly what you're going to do next. But through the Spirit and through the guidance of Spirit-filled people, you can figure out what to do next. So we look to the one who, who sacrificed everything so that we could have that. His body was broken. This is what it says. He breaks bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Let's take. And after he takes a cup and he says, this is blood of a new covenant. And we always say this here, that this is how we pledge allegiance to King Jesus. This is how we remind ourselves each week where we embody this coming together as a family. We remember that we are all part of this Jesus family and want to do his will and want to push his ways and his will into the communities and all the places that we are, our workplaces, our homes, and so forth. So we take the cup. Father God, I thank you so much. I thank you for this church family. I thank you for all the diverse gifts and experiences. I thank you for the quiet ones and the loud ones and 
and all of the, the things that you have put before us, all the, we have all of this family to know and to, to have each other's back in the very communities that we, we go into. I pray that through your spirit we would understand that in our gut, in our very gut, we'd be gut-wrenched for those around us, those who are struggling to know who you are, those who don't know who you are, that we would bring more to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.